0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who
1: Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope
2: that you visit Who Makes Sense.
1: Few social justice struggles have captivated recent political history, like the broad Black Lives Matter movement. From the streets of Ferguson and Baltimore to campaign rally interruptions of leading politicians, we have seen people speak up in outrage about injustices of policing, racist violence, wealth inequality, and much more.
0: What does this cycle of struggle have to do with the history of capitalism? In what ways is race the modality through which class is lived? To paraphrase the scholar Stuart Hall. And what does the Black Lives Matter movement have to do with class and power inequities among Black people, as well as frustration and disappointment with the Obama administration?
1: In addition to these questions, our guest today, Kianga Yamada Taylor, asks Can the conditions created by institutional racism be transformed within the existing capitalist order? Today, we talk about these questions and much more.
0: You are listening to Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism podcast.
1: I'm Betsy Beasley.
0: And I'm David Stein.
1: Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time.
0: We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present.
1: Today, we speak with Kianga Yamada Taylor. Hi, Kianga. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your book?
2: Uh, my book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation is really uh about trying to understand why this movement emerged at the height of black political power, including the you know second term of the nation's first black presidency, and what that really means for the future of black politics and whether or not that opens up the possibility for uh, a greater struggle um, for this concept of Black liberation and Black freedom. Can you give our
1: listeners an overview of some of the key questions that your book seeks to address?
2: In some sense, I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read and couldn't really find that really answered or engaged with the question of, Why this movement emerged now. I mean, racism obviously is not new in the United States. Neither is police violence and police brutality. And so, you know, there have been previous periods in uh, U.S. history where there have been a focal point on uh, police brutality. This year, of course, is the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Black Panther Party uh, for self-defense. And at the time, it was self-defense against police violence. Um, So this has in many ways been a a continuum, the the issues of racism and police violence in in Black life, um, I would argue, and I argue in the book, since emancipation. And yet the struggles against both of those phenomena um, are quite episodic. And so I'm interested in under what conditions do these movements emerge? What causes their delay? Um, How do both of those questions come together in this particular period? Um, And so I look at the phenomenon of the Obama presidency um, as an actual catalyzing factor uh, in the development of Black Lives Matter in the sense that I believe that the Obama administration or the Obama presidency, and specifically the Obama candidacy, really raise the expectations of ordinary Black people, particularly Black millennials, young Black people, that an Obama administration could be different from previous presidencies, previous presidential administrations. And, you know, I think that a lot of times that is cast today, eight years, almost eight years into the Obama era, uh, as naive and what were people thinking and, and that sort of thing. But I think That dismissing those expectations um, in such a way uh, really is to forget the power of the Obama candidacy um, in 2007 and the way in which um, Obama and his campaign uh, went out of their way to, you know, not run a typical campaign, uh, but to really try to tap into the sense that um, this was a social movement that this was, um, you know, the 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 change that we had been waiting for, um, and that Obama's uh, Obama would represent uh, a break uh, with the with with past presidencies and would represent something uh, different. And I think that in the context of the disaster of the George W. Bush uh, two-term uh, administration, punctuated by. Uh, the rise of the, the security state uh, after 9-11, the, the collective shrug of the Bush administration in response to the Hurricane Katrina disaster. And really the, the beginning of the sort of economic downturn uh, that would intensify um, in the first couple of years of the Obama administration, but really begins to take hold in the Bush administration uh, the era of subprime lending and the beginning, uh, the catastrophic beginnings of the home foreclosure crisis in Black communities. And so, in many ways, the the the, the way that Black millennials gravitate to the Obama administration is with a, quite a bit of hope and optimism uh, that this would represent a different kind of politics that had been on display to, throughout the the Bush administration. And so I look at the Obama administration, uh, the expectations around that as a catalyst, because those expectations and hope for uh, a different kind of presidency were quickly dashed within, you know, before Obama is even elected, Oscar Grant is murdered on a, a, a subway platform in Oakland, California. And that, you know, that is not necessarily Uh, You know, something that is obviously attributed to the Obama administration, Uh, but it was a very quick reminder that despite all the optimism of hope and change that would certainly come together in Grant Park in Chicago on the the night that Obama was elected in November, uh, that this was a kind of cold shock of uh, water back into reality uh, but then there were other opportunities for the Obama administration really to fulfill um, what many uh, young black voters who turned out in historic numbers uh, to elect Obama, uh, for him to kind of fulfill uh, their uh, you know, ideas about what this presidency could be like, uh, that are quickly dashed, whether it is Obama's refusal to intervene on behalf of Troy Davis. Uh, the black death row inmate, uh, from Georgia in September of 2011. Again, with Trayvon Martin in the spring of 2012, uh, Obama's, uh, inability to really articulate the kind of anger and, uh, uh, discontent among young black people and really the fear of a kind of lawless police, uh, presence in American cities that was putting, uh, black life in peril. From that, I sort of look at also uh, the history of uh, police violence in black communities to try to answer the question of why are the police so racist Um, and to also uh, push back against the idea that uh, the police can easily be reformed by looking at the entire history of uh, police interactions with black communities since emancipation. Uh, Towards the end of the book, I I have a a chapter that is wholly dedicated, I think it's the longest chapter of the book, to the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, looks at uh, the emergence of the movement, but also some of the emerging political dynamics of of the movement, which I think uh, are still um, sort of in development, but worth thinking about, uh, that have to do with questions of um, organization, questions of politics, and uh, what people, what, pe- what debates exist in terms of what the direction of the movement should be. Um, and then finally, uh, I look at this question of uh, what it means to be free. And can you elaborate on that last point a bit more
1: on this question of what freedom means?
2: There's a popular saying in the movement that the movement is about Black people getting free. Um, and so I'm interested in looking at what does it mean to be uh, free? And so one of the the ways that I start that chapter is, um, you know, I've found this sort of weird trivia um, uh, when I was looking into the case of Freddie Gray, the young Black man who died as a result of his injuries after being in police custody in Baltimore. Um, and Freddie Gray was picked up by police uh, 150 years to the day um, that the Civil War officially ended uh, in April of 1865. I use that as a way to uh, sort of explore this idea of actual freedom or, you know, statutory freedom, uh, freedom before the law versus uh Real freedom in terms of uh, the ability for people to make decisions about, to make decisions and act on uh, things to, you know, improve their quality of life free from violence, coercion, that sort of thing. And so I'm interested in the idea of freedom and Black liberation as a kind of highest expression uh, of that freedom. And how do we go from a moment like this in a movement that in some ways is very narrowly focused on the issue of police brutality towards a much more expansive idea of uh, black freedom? Uh, And how do we go from campaigns against police brutality uh, to opening up uh broader questions of what the existence of that brutality says about the nature of American society and what questions that raises about of what type of struggle needs to happen uh to not only be free from police violence uh but to be free from the violence that um is meted out against black people um in this capitalist society and so one of the the conclusions i come to from that is the way in which black movements historically uh, have always um, left black movements have always come back to this question of socialism as an answer to that. And so I'm re-raising that uh, as a legitimate goal uh, for a black movement today is the resuscitation of a socialist tradition um, that is oftentimes dismissed as a kind of white phenomenon And really trying to reclaim that as a mantle of the Black struggle, the fight for socialism, the fight for an equitable distribution of wealth and resources um, in a society that would render the need for police, which often tend to be mostly focused on responding to the, the products of social inequality and economic inequality, um, and not really reflective of an actually free society.
0: You have a sustained criticism of the way in which problems of poverty and inequality are discussed in terms of culture and morality, rather than political economy, or the capitalist mode of production. Can you explain for our audience why this is such a profoundly deceptive way of considering the issues at
2: stake? Sure. Sure. So the, the question of culture and personal responsibility, um, I think, is is a is a major issue because it continues to be the central way that black poverty is characterized in the U.S. Uh, and so insofar as there has been uh, resistance to that more recently, uh, I think that we can look to the Black Lives Matter movement as really playing a a key role in reintroducing uh, the language and ideas of structure into how we understand Black poverty, Black inequality um, in the United States. So much so that, you know, Hillary Clinton and her speech on race or racism in the U.S. in Harlem was going on about systemic racism. You can no longer just talk about race and inequality as being the product of something uh, that is created in black communities right now. But part of what I'm arguing about this is that this notion of culture of personal responsibility uh, becomes very important to the American uh, political uh, and economic elite because it takes all the pressure off of them and places it into black families, black neighborhoods, um, black communities, uh, by focusing on the supposed failures, uh, of, of a, you know, black culture to explain the disparities that exist between African Americans and white people, um, in American, uh, society. And, you know, the utility of that is, is quite clear because, If the problem is black people, then really what you're asking for in terms of curing that problem is personal transformation and not a kind of rebuilding of public infrastructure um, in the cities and places and spaces that black people live, not uh, in looking at the ways that black people have been economically excluded or Black living spaces have been um, disinvested from uh, really to understand what systemic or institutional or structural racism uh, is actually about. It means, you know, not looking at the uh, sort of intent of white individuals involved, but looking at the outcomes and understanding that those disparities and outcomes um, are based in an economy that Uh, has regularly marginalized African-Americans since emancipation uh, to the current day. And that we have to sort of understand uh, that dynamic is being central to black deprivation in this, in this society and that the focus um, on culture is a deflection uh, away from that, uh, away from that kind of analysis uh, in ways that work um, absolutely to the favor of the existing political establishment because it requires them to do nothing uh, except to go on and on about the kinds of individual changes black people need to do in order to cash in on, um, you know, the supposed riches that are on offer in American society.
0: One of the problems that you point to in your book is the chasm between black working class, social movements on the one hand, And the rise of a black political establishment on the other. For example, you discuss the changes that occurred within a decade from the 1972 National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana, to the formation in the early 1980s of the National Black Leadership Roundtable. In the 1970s, you note, the proposals coming out of Gary were much further to the left. But in the 1980s, we see a move to the right. Can you walk our listeners through some of these changes?
2: One of the main things I want people to come away from the, the book with is the understanding of uh, the Black movement, the movement of ordinary uh, Black people as expressed in the Civil Rights Movement, in the um, period of Black insurgency and the Black rebellions of the 1960s. Um, and those people on the streets of Ferguson and the streets of Baltimore those people are really the motor of black social progress, uh, black political progress. And really, they're the motor of American politics in general. I mean, if you look at the 1960s, the entire political uh, agenda of the 1960s is structured in reaction to the black masses of black popular uh, Armed, sometimes unarmed, at other times political struggle. Everything is in reaction to that, and so that, to me, is is the what King Martin Luther King brilliantly captures in that quote that I begin the book with. Is that the the black struggle is 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 so important because it exposes um, all of the issues and problems. Present in American society, it exposes the issues of racism, of militarism, of materialism um, in that one uh, uh, struggle, and and really exposes the lie uh, that we are consistently told about what American society is, what the United States purports to be. The Black struggle destroys that, and so that the power of that movement, the further the Black political establishment that really emerges in the late 1960s um, and and through the 1970s, the further it gets away from the power of that movement, the more conservative it becomes. So it begins as a conservatizing element within the Black movement uh, in the first place, even though it has the markings of uh, a, a kind of political progress. So most people tend to think of uh, the emergence of black mayors of of, of really formal black politics as uh, a, a positive step. So Bayard Rustin refers to it from uh, protest to to politics. That this um, is seen as a uh, a kind of point of political maturation. But the idea that the entry into uh, formal politics is 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 something positive. Uh, and, and mature, I think underestimates the sort of power of black street protests and what was really uh, at stake, and also the way in which you know the the general political establishment uh, was quite open to sort of absorbing elements of the movement into the political apparatus uh, as a way to contain black protests and as a way to basically create the democratic party. Um, as a kind of site of, quote unquote, legitimate political protest, that there was no need to be in the streets when you could be in a legitimate party, you could buy for uh, political office legitimately. And that absorption into the Democratic Party and into mainstream politics in general was also seen as a way to split the movement, to quell the more unruly, Uh, aspects of of the black movement. And so the further we get away from the street protests, the threat of violence that uh, the black movement by the late 1960s represented, you see the more conservative formal black politics becomes as those actors must then begin to adapt uh, to the circumstances that they find themselves in. And so Congress is not set up for insurgent political uh, behavior. The United States government in general, we're taught in civics class that these so-called checks and balances um, are ways to, you know, deliberate or deliver some kind of political equilibrium throughout the system. Well, Really, it's a recipe for inaction. It's a recipe for gridlock. um, And it's a recipe for nothing happening. And so what it means is that the U.S. Congress is built on negotiations between uh, different groups of people. And so in order to be, quote unquote, politically effective, uh, you know, you have to negotiate and play by the existing rules. And I think that you have uh, black political operatives who may have gotten into, you know, politics for all sorts of reasons. John Conyers at one point in the late 1960s, 1969, says in an article written uh Ebony mag- Magazine that uh, his intention is to bring soul into the American uh, Congress, uh, to bring the spirit of black people into American um, politics. And so, but without the, the motor of the, the, the black movement pushing things in the, the direction of uh, progressive politics, they adapted to the political circumstances that existed, which were ones of uh, pragmatism, compromise, negotiations, all the things that we hear Hillary Clinton uh, talking about as positive attributes for her um, candidacy and campaign today um, is absolutely true. That's that's how the uh, American Congress works. And so you can see the dramatic shift from 1972 and Gary, where that that threat of um, black insurgency is still quite palpable in the air. And, you know, the, the kind of political tenor um, that exists at that political gathering, which is anti-capitalist and, and has many contradictions, but there's still a very strong element of um, the, this kind of insurgent politics in the air compared to by 19. 19- uh 82 in the the black political roundtable of which any notion of anti-capitalism has been taken off the table uh there's you know uh a, a dominant discussion about crime and um black people policing other black people um over issues of crime it's a very inward uh depressing political uh development that really speaks to uh the sort of decline Uh, of the movement. And you can begin to see the the conservative uh, contours of the new development in black politics, which is basically to adapt to um, this new political environment um, and to really lower expectations.
1: One key element of your book is a sustained emphasis that any study of the history of capitalism must involve an analysis of race. Can you elaborate on how you understand the entanglements of race and class throughout history?
2: I'm trying to look at racism and how we understand the function of racism in American society as moving beyond just the kind of, you know, we don't like black people and that's why we're racist, but really locating the uh, oppression of black people um, in the history of American racism, um, and looking at how that changes over time i I would say in that sense, yes, um, I do think that this history and the historical understanding of the development of the Black Lives Matter movement contemporarily um, is you know is part of, part of it is understanding that history and the historical relationship between race and capitalism in the United States. And so I think that given some of the recent discussions in the in some of the left uh, critiques of the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, that he's what people have referred to as an uh, economic reductionist that Hillary Clinton's campaign has picked up on and is referring to him as a single issue candidate, meaning he, meaning he only wants to talk about the economy, um, the ways that people have separated race um, from class, uh, yeah, sure. I think, shows the importance of um, really trying to reintegrate the two um, and making an argument for that, that it, it's not race or class, it's race and class together, and that you can't really understand the historical developments around uh, race, racism, racial inequality. In the United States, without understanding in tandem uh, the history of capitalism in the United States, and so part of my objective uh, in this book is to bring those histories um, together in a dynamic way, where as I often, you know, think these discussions are. Uh, carried it out in a ham-fisted way that uh, lend credence to both sides that we should keep them separate because they don't make sense the way uh, we, you know, put race and class together. And so in some ways I'm, I'm responding to that as well. and trying to make a, a coherent argument for why we have to look at these two factors together. You
0: highlight how colorblindness has been deployed as a Trojan horse to cut social welfare spending and for austerity. How has this happened? What role does the idea of colorblindness play in public policy?
2: I'll just say quickly about the, the, the colorblindness issue is, I think that it's quite important in terms of understanding the uh, its relationship to the sort of earlier descriptions of the culture of poverty in American politics that were much more or, you know, very pronounced in the, in the 1960s and the way that the, the movement itself forced new explanations uh, for understanding black poverty in a similar way that exists today, uh, where I think the, the notion of culture and personal responsibility uh, comes back with a vengeance in the 1980s and the 1990s, and that the you know important contribution of Black Lives Matter has been to push back um, on that and to force the discussion of structure and uh, structural and institutional racism into uh, the discussion uh, about inequality in the United States. And so part of what I'm arguing about colorblindness is that in some ways it's, it's a way that, in the the 1970s with the rise of the Nixon administration uh, was a way of attacking the movement in a a kind of offhand uh, way because there, as I said earlier, was still this threat of of violence um, from the Black movement. And so in some ways that may be hard for people to conceptualize because we are looking back into history, but in, in the early 1970s, just two years out from, uh, the last really large, uh, urban uprisings, um, of the 1960s, it wasn't clear whether or not, um, that could still happen. And, uh, and I think to understand what that threat meant really is to, is for people to get a grasp on the way that black rebellion in the 1960s shocked the political establishment, um, and, as I said before, was a driving factor in um, all of American politics in the 1960s. And so we're talking about, really from 1963 through 1968 uh, uprisings in more than 200 American cities involving um, more than 500,000 African-Americans, which is almost the same number of troops that went to Vietnam. So we're, it's not a sort of inconsequential number of people. You look at something like Baltimore or Ferguson and just the impact that those two struggles, rebellions have had in American politics, uh, you multiply that by 30 and you can begin to get some idea uh, about the catastrophic for the political establishment impact um, that these political expressions uh, were having in American politics. So a Nixon regime, which comes in and has a very sort of um, conservative idea of what government involvement in social welfare should be, can't just willy-nilly come in and start cutting everything and carrying out its program because you don't know how people will react to that. Uh, And so part of paving the the ground for that, part of setting the stage for that, uh, is to really um, begin to reintroduce uh, these ideas of uh, personal dysfunction. Um, And so in that sense, the Nixon administration and its supporters and sympathizers uh, could look to the kind of way that race had been taken out of the law because of the civil rights legislation of the 1960s, and say, you know, essentially that we've achieved this colorblind status in the in the US. Race is no longer in the law. Um, and not only is it no longer in the law, it has been criminalized and banned. Um, and so um, that is the basis upon which we can start um, this kind of new understanding. Uh, and anyone, you know, who is not able to take advantage of these new opportunities, uh, well, clearly that no longer has anything to do with the state, no longer has anything to do with um, any sort of organized discrimination. Uh, it clearly, as George Romney, um, Nixon's secretary of HUD, would go and blame crisis of problem people, um, not a crisis of the system. And so that becomes this idea that by changing the law and then introducing anti-discrimination language uh, to, to ban discrimination becomes the, a new basis uh, upon which to say that, you know, the U.S. is a different kind of society that, you know, has this kind of unbounded uh, opportunity. And for those who are not able to take advantage of that, you can no longer blame the system which leaves us with no alternative than to blame uh, individuals. Um, and so I think that that history is important to understand in terms of how, you know, how we get back to these politics of culture and personal uh, responsibility uh, when talking about how we understand disparities between African-Americans um, and the rest of, 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 of society and how that begins to lay uh, a groundwork, not only for charges of personal responsibility, but if the state is no longer responsible for that kind of discrimination, then can you legitimately then call on the state to create these programs that are intended to specifically help black people? Uh, So there's, you know, there are many implications for the introduction of colorblindness into political discourse in the in the 1970s.
1: You also talk about the history and the danger of the role of philanthropy in black social movements. What does
2: this history lead one to
1: consider about the role of big foundations and movements for social justice?
2: The, The issues of philanthropy, they're very important to. to to take up because the the funders and the non-governmental organizations and the foundations understood an opportunity with Black Lives Matter as a movement, not the organization, but the movement as a whole. And, you know, I think some of these foundations more than others, particularly something like Ford, you know, have a long history and a track record of um, understanding these types of political developments. Um, And really trying to work to curtail their radical um, nature and to redirect uh, the focus of those movements into um, policy change, policy critique, um, but things that are sort of contained within um, the system itself and to really begin to limit the parameters of, of change that people um, are exploring or talking about, but I do think it's important um, to say because I think that the the role of the foundations and funders has been talked about quite a bit in left circles uh, as it relates to Black Lives Matter. Um, but I do think it's important to say that this is not a new phenomenon that this the this type of intervention into left movements from so-called liberals and and liberal organizations, you know, has a very, very long uh, history, um, has a particular history in the civil rights movement in terms of how there was a concerted effort to, you know, redirect the energies of the, the civil rights struggle onto voting rights, which is not to diminish the importance of voting rights, but often voting rights was used to buttress against Uh, A more sort of radical struggle that tried to get at the uh, systemic nature of race, racial discrimination um, in the United States that tried to link the struggle in the United States with international movements against racial inequality. And that uh, also looked to more radical means other than voting uh, to challenge the American state. And so funders and foundations were quite influential in in some cases, subverting that political agenda, in other cases, redirecting it. And so one of the things that I argue is that, you know, it's not just the money uh, that uh, is an issue, because all uh, social movements need money, are vulnerable to money issues. Um, but it's also politically the way that these uh, foundations and organizations try to redirect uh, movements so forward. You know, often conferences and uh, develops papers and all kinds of political statements about how groups should organize, what their focus should be. Uh, so there is a, a quite a concerted effort to kind of hem in the struggle. And so, you know, my point of writing about that is is that you know people have to have to be aware. Of these attempts at manipulation, and it means that we have to talk about alternative ways of, of of fundraising. We have to talk about how to maintain the independence of our political struggles. We have to sometimes then you know talk about the politics of uh, these organizations, and that that can be important uh, as well in terms of how we understand that billion dollar foundations aren't giving money and resources just because they want to, or they can, because it's a good idea that they're often strings attached and th- there just needs to be a, a sort of more open and wider discussion about that.
1: I'd like to step back a little bit. You wrote this book at the same time that conditions were changing rapidly on a daily basis. you were really writing in the present. What was that experience like?
2: It's it's an interesting question. I was asked to write the book in December of 2014, early December, so like December 13th, before the explosion of protests that happened in December and January after the failure to indict Darren Wilson um, or Dan, Daniel uh, Pantaleo, who uh, murdered Eric Garner. And, you know, and I... I was reluctant to write the book because it's very difficult writing a m- about a moving target. But when I sat down to think about how I would structure the book and uh, what I was really trying to do, I realized that it was less of a kind of journalistic blow-by-blow account of uh, what was what's happening with Black Lives Matter this week, next week, and over the next two or three months. But It was more about trying to understand, um, one, why, as as I stated earlier, why these movements develop in some periods and not in others. Um, And when they're not in development, even though there is a persisting feature of uh, racism, police brutality and inequality, what contributes to that? Um, And so you know, that, that's not necessarily an urgent contemporary question that, um, has only come up in the, the recent moment, but that's a larger historical question. And then from there, I had a question about politically. It, it's related to, to the, the first one, but, you know, also, I'm, um, I was interested in this question of colorblindness and how it works in tandem with the idea of the culture of poverty. And how both of those work in tandem uh, with ideas of the American dream and American exceptionalism. And so I was very interested in um, politics and and ideology. Again, that these were not um, urgent, uh, uh, immediate questions, um, but questions that I thought were important um, for people in the movement to be able to grapple with nonetheless in terms of understanding uh, the challenges beyond the immediate strategic, strategic and tactical questions, um, but what are some of the larger historical forces that a movement has to contend with in order to be able to break through and, and move forward? And the same was true about really trying to grapple with the question of whether or not we we're witnessing a kind of generational conflict between the old guard civil rights establishment and the emergence of these new uh, political forces um, represented by black lives matter and black youth project and hands up United and a whole, you know, number of new uh, organizations that were developing. How did we understand um, how do we understand the tensions uh, between these groups that looks looks further beneath the surface than the kind of media simplicity of uh, this is simply generational. Obviously, there's a generational aspect to it, as there is with every the emergence of every new movement. When you have new people, new activists who don't bear the scars and the weight of baggage from uh, defeats of an earlier period. So that that that's a that's a given. Um, but what were some of the political tensions animating the very public breach uh, between some of the new activists and the older um, Black political uh, establishment? And so, again, that also wasn't a kind of time-bound uh, question, but that was a, a, a historical question that had contemporary uh, a contemporary relevance to it. So when, when I began to sort of map out how I wanted to do the book, I realized that there were a couple of chapters, the chapter on Obama um, and the chapter on Black Lives Matter, that were dealing with uh, a kind of contemporary blow-by-blow of what was happening, but that really the the majority of the book uh, was dealing with much larger questions, questions that I've been thinking about for several years as someone who uh, was an activist long before I ever got into the academy, and have have thought about these issues uh, for quite some time. Which is why I think I was able to, you know, write this book in a relatively quick. Ma- I mean, I wrote the the manuscript in probably uh, seven weeks. So because these are questions I've been grappling with myself politically for uh, for several years.
1: If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whomakesense and follow us on Twitter at whomakesense. And let us know if there are any topics that you want to know more about.
0: You can learn more about Kianga's work at our website, whomakessensepodcast.com.
1: Whomakesense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity.
0: Join us next month for more. Histories of Capitalism.